We're glad you've joined us on Songs of Praise, an hour of musical reflection to encourage your heart.
you're enjoying songs of praise here's some more inspirational music
that is in me is yours completely. I'll serve you. Snow, there's power in the blood, power 
are in the blood. Since things are lost in its life-giving flow, there's wonderful power in the blood. There is power, there is power, wonder-working power in the blood. In the blood of the Lamb. There is power, there is power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. Would you do service for Jesus, your King? There's power in the blood, power in the blood. Would you live daily His praises to sing? There's wonderful power in the blood. There is power, there is power, wonder-working power in the blood. In the blood of the Lamb. There is power, there is power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. Songs of Praise continues with more inspirational music. When shadows are dark and drear, a friend comes to bring me cheer. The face of my Savior I see. He offers his love 
Lord, let me hold 
You're listening to Songs of Praise. It's our desire to encourage and uplift your thoughts to our loving Creator God. Soon we'll see his face. 
Join us again next time on Songs of Praise, brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio, to enjoy more uplifting music. Welcome to 3ABN Australia Radio's book reading program. The book Christ's Object Lessons, written by Ellen White, presents the parables of Jesus in a fresh light, showing their application to Christian living today. In this devotional classic, Ellen White explores the depths of the best-loved teachings of Jesus, offering a deeply spiritual understanding of the parables of Christ as they apply to our lives today. 
You'll enjoy the practical applications in a way that touches your heart. Listen now as Clive Nash reads. Continuing the chapter, Like Unto Leaven. The Apostle Paul, writing by the Holy Spirit, says, God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace ye are saved, and has raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 to 8. The leaven hidden in the flour works invisibly to bring the whole mass under its leavening process. So the leaven of truth works secretly, silently, steadily to transform the soul. The natural inclinations are softened and subdued. New thoughts, new feelings, new motives are implanted. A new standard of character is set up. The life of Christ. The mind is changed. The faculties are roused to action in new lines. Man is not endowed with new faculties, but the faculties he has are sanctified. The conscience is awakened. We are endowed with traits of character that enable us to do service for God. Often the question arises, why then are there so many claiming to believe God's word in whom there is not seen a reformation in words, in spirit and in character. Why are there so many who cannot bear opposition to their purposes and plans, who manifest an unholy temper and whose words are harsh, overbearing and passionate? There is seen in their lives the same love of self, the same selfish indulgence, the same temper and hasty speech that is seen in the life of the worldling. There is the same sensitive pride, the same yielding to natural inclination, the same perversity of character, as if the truth were wholly unknown to them. The reason is that they are not converted. They have not hidden the leaven of truth in the heart. It has not had opportunity to do its work. Their natural and cultivated tendencies to evil have not been submitted to its transforming power. Their lives reveal the absence of the grace of Christ and unbelief in his power to transform the character. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Romans 10.17 The scriptures are the great agency in the transformation of character. Christ prayed, Sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. John 17 verse 17 If studied and obeyed, the word of God works in the heart, subduing every unholy attribute. The Holy Spirit comes to convict of sin, and the faith that springs up in the heart works by love to Christ, conforming us in body, soul, and spirit to his own image. Then God can use us to do his will. The power given us works from within outwardly, leading us to communicate to others the truth that has been communicated to us. The truths of the Word of God meet man's great practical necessity, the conversion of the soul through faith. These grand principles are not to be thought too pure and holy to be brought into the daily life. They are truths which can reach to heaven and encompass eternity, yet their vital influence is to be woven into human experience. 
They are to permeate all the great things and all the little things of life. Received into the heart, the leaven of truth will regulate the desires, purify the thoughts and sweeten the disposition. It quickens the faculties of the mind and the energies of the soul. It enlarges the capacity for feeling, for loving. The world regards as a mystery the man who is imbued with this principle. The selfish, money-loving man lives only to secure for himself the riches, honours and pleasures of this world. He loses the eternal world from his reckoning. But with the follower of Christ, these things will not be all-absorbing. For Christ's sake he will labour and deny self, that he may aid in the great work of saving souls who are without Christ and without hope in the world. Such a man the world cannot understand, for he is keeping in view eternal realities. The love of Christ, with its redeeming power, has come into the heart. This love masters every other motive and raises its possessor above the corrupting influence of the world. The Word of God is to have a sanctifying effect on our association with every member of the human family. The leaven of truth will not produce the spirit of rivalry, the love of ambition, the desire to be first. True, heaven-born love is not selfish and changeable. It is not dependent on human praise. The heart of him who receives the grace of God overflows with love for God and for those for whom Christ died. Self is not struggling for recognition. He does not love others because they love and please him, because they appreciate his merits, but because they are Christ's purchased possession. If his motives, words or actions are misunderstood or misrepresented, he takes no offence, but pursues the even tenor of his way. He is kind and thoughtful, humble in his opinion of himself, yet full of hope, always trusting in the mercy and love of God. The Apostle exhorts us, As he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. 1 Peter 1, verses 15 and 16. The grace of Christ is to control the temper and the voice. Its working will be seen in politeness and tender regard shown by brother for brother in kind, encouraging words. An angel presence is in the home. The life breathes a sweet perfume which ascends to God as holy incense. Love is manifested in kindness, gentleness, forbearance and long-suffering. The countenance is changed. Christ abiding in the heart shines out in the faces of those who love him and keep his commandments. Truth is written there. The sweet peace of heaven is revealed. There is expressed a habitual gentleness, a more than human love. The leaven of truth works a change in the whole man, making the coarse refined, the rough gentle, the selfish generous. By it the impure are cleansed, washed in the blood of the Lamb. Through its life-giving power it brings all there is of mind and soul and strength into harmony with the divine life. Man with his human nature becomes a partaker of divinity. Christ is honoured in excellence and perfection of character. As these changes are effected, angels break forth in rapturous song, and God and Christ rejoice over souls fashioned after the divine similitude. Hidden Treasure This chapter is based on Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. Again the kingdom of heaven is like unto treasure hid in a field. 
the which when a man hath found, he hideth, and for joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he hath, and buyeth that field. In ancient times it was customary for men to hide their treasures in the earth. Thefts and robberies were frequent, and whenever there was a change in the ruling power, those who had large possessions were liable to be put under heavy tribute. Moreover, the country was in constant danger of invasion by marauding armies. As a consequence, the rich endeavoured to preserve their wealth by concealing it, and the earth was looked upon as a safe hiding place. But often the place of concealment was forgotten. Death might claim the owner, imprisonment or exile might separate him from his treasure, and the wealth he had taken such pains to preserve was left for the fortunate finder. In Christ's day, it was not uncommon to discover in neglected land old coins and ornaments of gold and silver. A man hires land to cultivate, and as the oxen plough the soil, buried treasure is unearthed. As the man discovers this treasure, he sees that a fortune is within his reach. Restoring the gold to its hiding place, he returns to his home and sells all that he has in order to purchase the field containing the treasure. His family and his neighbours think that he is acting like a madman. Looking on the field, they see no value in the neglected soil. But the man knows what he is doing, and when he has a title to the field, he searches every part of it to find the treasure that he has secured. This parable illustrates the value of the heavenly treasure and the effort that should be made to secure it. The finder of the treasure in the field was ready to part with all that he had, ready to put forth untiring labour in order to secure the hidden riches. So the finder of heavenly treasure will count no labour too great and no sacrifice too dear in order to gain the treasures of truth. In the parable, the field containing the treasure represents the Holy Scriptures, and the gospel is the treasure. The earth itself is not so interlaced with golden veins and filled with precious things as is the Word of God. How hidden! The treasures of the gospel are said to be hidden by those who are wise in their own estimation, who are puffed up by the teaching of vain philosophy, the beauty and power and mystery of the plan of redemption are not perceived. Many have eyes, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. They have intellect, but they discern not the hidden treasure. A man might pass over the place where treasure had been concealed. In dire necessity he might sit down to rest at the foot of a tree, not knowing of the riches hidden at its roots. So it was with the Jews. As a golden treasure truth had been entrusted to the Hebrew people. The Jewish economy, bearing the signature of heaven, had been instituted by Christ himself. In types and symbols, the great truths of redemption were veiled. Yet when Christ came, the Jews did not recognize him to whom all these symbols pointed. They had the word of God in their hands, but the traditions which had been handed down from generation to generation and the human interpretation of the Scriptures hid from them the truth as it is in Jesus. The spiritual import of the sacred writings was lost. The treasure house of all knowledge was open to them, but they knew it not. God does not conceal his truth from men, 
by their own course of action, they make it obscure to themselves. Christ gave the Jewish people abundant evidence that he was the Messiah, but his teaching called for a decided change in their lives. They saw that if they received Christ, they must give up their cherished maxims and traditions, their selfish, ungodly practices. It required a sacrifice to receive changeless, eternal truth. Therefore, they would not admit the most conclusive evidence that God could give to establish faith in Christ. They professed to believe the Old Testament scriptures, yet they refused to accept the testimony contained therein concerning Christ's life and character. They were afraid of being convinced, lest they should be converted and be compelled to give up their preconceived opinions. The treasure of the gospel, the way, the truth, and the life was among them, but they rejected the greatest gift that heaven could bestow. Among the chief rulers also, many believed on him, we read, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. John 12, verse 42. They were convinced they believed Jesus to be the Son of God, but it was not in harmony with their ambitious desires to confess him. They had not the faith that would have secured for them the heavenly treasure. And today, men are eagerly seeking for earthly treasure. Their minds are filled with selfish, ambitious thoughts. For the sake of gaining worldly riches, honor or power, they place the maxims, traditions and requirements of men above the requirements of God. From them, the treasures of His Word are hidden. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 14 Join us again next time as Clive Nash continues to read from the book Christ's Object Lessons, written by Ellen G. White. hope you enjoy the short presentation of how God led His people after the Reformation from lineagejourney.com. Washington, New Hampshire had been a bedrock of Sabbatarianism in the late 1840s with Cyrus and William Farnsworth, Frederick Wheeler and T.M. Preble all living nearby. By the 1860s though, spiritual decline had set in. D.M. Canwright and J.N. Andrews had worked in the area with limited success and by 1867 the church had closed. Frederick Wheeler had now moved to New York State. There was a spirit of judgmentalism, bitterness and a general backsliding that had set in amongst the members. In 1867, Ellen and James White came to the area to conduct a revival series and stayed in the home of Cyrus Farnsworth. Over the course of several days, they held nine meetings, but were met with little success. It was difficult work. Some of the success stories, though, were the reconversion of Worcester Ball. 
He had become a bitter antagonist of Ellen White and was a prickly character prone to critical comments. But as Ellen faithfully and tenderly appealed to him, he returned to the fold. Another person in the community who was a pillar was William Farnsworth, but he had recently gone back to chewing tobacco unbeknownst to anyone. His friends and family had no idea about this recent change, but his son, Eugene, did know. He had seen his father spitting in the snow when they were out in the woods and covering it with his foot, but he did not tell anyone and kept this to himself. Eugene was a teenager, and a visit about a year or so earlier by Jay and Andrews had encouraged him to question his purpose in life. He was, however, unconvinced of the prophetic gift of Ellen White, but now she was in town, he had the perfect opportunity to test this out. If Ellen White was truly a prophet, then she would know about his father's tobacco habit, which no one else except himself knew about. As she was speaking personally to those present, some words of rebuke, some encouragement, she turned and looked at William Farnsworth and gave a pointed testimony about his use of both pork and tobacco whilst appearing to be a faithful defender of the faith. She said he was a great hindrance to the work in New Hampshire and he publicly repented of his sin and turned his life around. At those meetings, 18 young people would give their lives to Jesus, nine of which would go on to be full-time workers for the church, one of which was Eugene Farnsworth, making those meetings in Christmas 1867 a significant turning point in this area and the lives of those present. This story also illustrates the powerful impact of the prophetic gift. And while it was often used for broad and far-reaching messages, it was also personal in nature, speaking to people's individual needs and issues. William Farnsworth, with his secret and private sin, was a stumbling block to the progress of the work in the town and a hindrance to at least one of the young men dedicating his life fully to God. Maybe you are struggling with a secret or a private sin that no one else knows about. Surrender it to God. Dedicate your life to him and allow his power to rule in your life. To view more episodes in the series, visit lineagejourney.com.